This is The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film, starting from the early days of Hollywood all the way up to modern cinema. Take a journey with me, your host, Becca, as I explore all the different facets of filmmaking and all the amazing women making these films. Welcome back to The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film. If you happen to hear any extra noise, I wasn't lazy this time. I did actually turn off my AC and not washing laundry or anything. Uh, I have new neighbors and they listen to their television incredibly loud. Thus is the joy of apartment living. Anyway, since the last episode we did was about writers in the early days of Hollywood, we are now on to our writers in the studio system. So the studio system comes around and with the talkies comes more need for scripts. Scripts became a way bigger part of the filmmaking process and hiring women writers was based on just how each studio felt. In fact, since so many scenarios were women, they naturally made the jump over to studio writers. Some studios would hire women specifically to cater to female audiences, but also men started seeing women as competition and were not being as kind to them. In the 1940s, women only made up 15% of the film workforce. So, let's get started. First up, we have Lenore Coffee. Yes, Coffee. It's the best last name. Lenore was born in San Francisco in 1896, and she attended Dominican College in San Rafael, California. After that, she began her career when she answered an ad requesting a screen story for actress Clara Kimball Young and was awarded a one-year contract at $50 a week. She was twice nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. The first was for Street of Chance in 1929-30, that was adapted from the story by Oliver H.P. Garrett in collaboration with Howard Estabrook. And the second was with Julius J. Epstein in 1938 for Four Daughters, based on Fanny Hurst's short story, Sister Act. So here is a quote about the studio system that she has said. They pick your brains, break your heart, ruin your digestion, and what do you get for it? Nothing but a lousy fortune. I already have uh, heartburn, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm ready for Hollywood. Uh, Coffee wrote many stories related to experiences women faced during her time, yet they weren't often met with commercial success. Coffee spent many years with Warner Brothers, which she actually mentions in her autobiography as being the only female writer. Yikes. Outside of the film industry, she wrote a novel called Another Time, Another Place, as well as a play called Family Portrait. It's a little bit of a mixed bag this time as of uh, like how much information I got about each person this time. So next up we have Dorothy Parker and Dorothy was known as Dot and or Dottie and was born in Rothschild, New Jersey in 1893. She sold her first poem to Vanity Fair magazine in 1914 and some months later was hired as an editorial assistant for Vogue, another Condé Nast magazine and she moved to Vanity Fair as a staff writer after two years at Vogue. In 1932, she moved to Hollywood and signed a 10-week contract with Paramount Pictures, earning 1000 per week, and it would eventually earn sometimes 2000 or even 5000 a week, depending, and she was part of a freelancer group for various studios as well. She co-wrote a script in 1937 for the film A Star is Born, and uh, the, the whole team was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Writing Screenplay. She wrote additional dialogue for The Little Foxes in 1941. And together with Frank Cavett, she received a nomination for an Oscar for the screenplay of Smash Up, The Story of Women in 1947, starring Susan Hayward. 
After the United States entered the Second World War, she and Alexander Wolcott collaborated to produce an anthology of her work as part of a series published by Viking Press for servicemen stationed overseas, with an introduction by W. Somerset Mangum. The volume compiled over two dozen of Parker's short stories, along with selected poems from Enough Rope, Sunset Gun, and Death in Taxes. It was published in the United States in 1944 under the title The Portable Dorothy Parker. Hers is one of the three portable series, including volumes in- devoted to William Shakespeare and the Bible. Then they have remained in continuous print. During the 1930s and 40s, Parker became an increasingly vocal advocate of civil liberties and civil rights and a frequent critic of authority figures during the Great Depression. She was among numerous Americans, intellectuals, and artists who became involved in the related social movements. Parker was listed as a communist by the publication Red Channels in 1950, The FBI actually compiled a thousand-page dossier on her because of her suspected involvement in communism during the era when Senator Joseph McCarthy was raising alarms about communists in government and Hollywood. As a side note, it's hot here where I live, so my AC is just going to turn itself on, I guess. Um, so, sorry, I I did try. As a result, movie studio bosses placed her on the Hollywood blacklist. Her final screenplay was The Fan, a 1949 adaption of Oscar Wilde's Lady Windmere's Fan, directed by Otto Priminger. Parker occasionally participated in radio programs including Information Please as a guest and Author Author as a regular panelist. She wrote for the Columbia Workshop and both Ilka Chase and Tallulah Bankhead used her material for radio monologues. And now the AC's off. Parker died on June 7, 1967, of a heart attack at the age of 73. In her will, she bequeathed her estate to Martin Luther King Jr. Following King's death, her estate was bequeathed by his family to the NAACP. Her executor, Lillian Hellman, bitterly but unsuccessfully contested this disposition. Her ashes remained unclaimed in various places, including her attorney, Paul O'Dwyer's filing cabinet, for approximately 17 years. In 1988, the NAACP claimed Parker's remains and designed a memorial garden for them outside its Baltimore headquarters. That's nice. Up next, we have Zoe Atkins. Zoe Bird Atkins was born in Humansville, Missouri. That sounds like a front for an alien operation, just saying. Her family moved to St. Louis, Missouri when Zoe was in her early teens. She was sent to Monticello Seminary uh, in nearby Godfrey, Illinois for her education and later Hosmere Hall Preparation School in St. Louis. While at Hosmere Hall, she was a classmate of the poet Sarah Teasdale, both graduating with the class of 1903. It was Monticello's seminary that Atkins wrote her first play, a parody of a Greek tragedy. Following graduation, Atkins began writing a series of play, poetry, and criticism for various magazines and newspapers, as well as occasional acting roles in the St. Louis area theater productions. All these girls, I swear, all these writers are actors, but I guess that that's a good thing. Her first major dramatic work was Papa, written in 1914. The comedy failed even though it greatly impressed H.L. Mencken and George Jean Nathan. As she continued to write, she followed up with two other plays, The Magical City and De Classe. I say that with a question mark because once again, as you all know, I do not pronounced French very well. The latter play, which starred Ethel Barrymore, was not only a great success, but something of a sensation. During this time, several of her early plays were adapted for the screen. These adaptations were mostly failures, released as silent films in the time when industry was transforming into sound. While some talkie stars had notable roles in the films, most films are now believed to be lost, unfortunately. In 1930, 
Atkins had another great success with her play, The Greeks Had a Word for It, a comedy about three models in search for rich husbands. In the early 1930s, Atkins became more active in film, writing several screenplays as well as continuing to sell the rights to plays such as The Greeks Had a Word for It in 1930, which was adapted for the movies three times in 1932 and 1938 and in 1953, which had changed to How to Marry a Millionaire, which is great. Uh, two highlights of this period were the films Sarah and Son in 1930 and Morning Glory in 1933. Both films earned their respective female leads Academy Award nominations for Best Actress. In 1935, she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for her dramatization of Edith Wharton's The Old Maid, a melodrama set in New York City and written in five episodes stretching across from time 1839 to 1854. The play was adapted for a 1939 film starring Betty Davis. In 1936, Atkins co-wrote the screenplay Camille, adapted from Alexandra Dumas's play and novel La Dame au Camellia. So sorry for, for French speakers out there. <laughs> the film starred Greta Garbo, Robert Taylor, and Lionel Barrymore, and earned Garbo her third Oscar nomination. Up next is Lillian Hellman. Lillian Florence Hellman was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and during most of her childhood, she spent half of each year in New Orleans in a boarding home run by her aunts and the other half in New York City. She studied for two years in New York City University, then took several courses at Columbia University. In December, she married Arthur Kober, a playwright and press agent, although they often lived apart, and in 1929 traveled around Europe for some time and settled in Bonn to continue her education. She felt an initial attraction to a Nazi student group that advocated for a kind of socialism until their questioning about her Jewish ties made their anti-Semitism clear, and she returned immediately to the United States. Years later, she wrote, Then, for the first time in my life, I thought about being a Jew. Beginning in 1930, for about a year, she earned $50 a week as a reader for Metro Goldwyn Mayer in Hollywood, writing summaries of novels and periodical literature for potential screenplays. Although she found the job rather dull, it created many opportunities for her to meet greater range of creative people while she became involved in more political and artistic scenes during that time. While there, she met and fell in love with a mystery writer, Dashiell Hammett. She divorced Colbert and returned to New York City in 1932. When she met Hammett in a Hollywood restaurant, she was 24 and he was 36. They maintained their relationship on and off until his death in January 19. Hellman's drama, The Children's Hour, premiered on Broadway in November 24, 1934, and ran for 691 performances. Following the success of The Children's Hour, Hellman returned to Hollywood as a screenwriter for Goldwyn Pictures at 2500 a week. She first collaborated on a screenplay for The Dark Angel, an earlier play and silent film. Following the film's successful release in 1935, Goldwyn purchased the rights to The Children's Hour, for $35,000 while it was still running on Broadway. Hellman wrote the play to conform to the standards of the Motion Picture Production Code, under which any mention of lesbianism was impossible. She next wrote the screenplay for Dead End in 1937, which featured a first appearance of the Dead End Kids and premiered in 1937. On May 1st, 1935, Hellman joined the League of American Writers, whose members included 
Deshiel Hammett, Alexander Trachtenberg, and international publishers Frank Folsom, Louis Uttermeyer, I.F. Stone, Myrna Page, Million Brand, and Arthur Miller. Also in 1935, Hellman joined the struggling Screen Actors Guild, devoted herself to recruiting new members, and proved one of its most aggressive advocates. One of its key issues was the dictatorial way producers credited writers for their work known as screen credit. Hellman had received no recognition for some of her early projects, although she was the principal author of The Westerner in 1934 and principal contributor to The Melody Lingers On in 1935. That's something we talked about in a couple episodes ago. Early film, really, you didn't get credit for, and I think that was a big, big issue uh, back then. Hellman actually was a member of the Communist Party from 1938 to 1940, and she stated as saying, like, I was a very lax member, I wasn't really into it. Uh, And in 1942, Hellman received an Academy Award nomination for her screenplay for the film version of The Little Foxes. Two years later, she received another nomination for her screenplay, The North Star, the only original screenplay of her career. She objected to the film's production numbers that, she said, turned a village festival into an extended opera buffet, peopled by musical comedy characters, but still told the New York Times that it was a valuable and true picture which tells the good deal of the truth about fascism. To establish a difference between her screenplay and the film, Hellman published her screenplay in the fall of 1943. In 1947, Columbia Pictures offered Hellman a multi-year contract, which she refused because the contract included a loyalty cause that she viewed as an infringement of her rights of free speech and association. It required her to sign a statement that she had never been a member of the Communist Party and would not associate with radicals or subversives, which would have been required for her to end her life with Hammett. Shortly thereafter, William Wyler told her he was unable to hire her to work on a film because she was blacklisted. Oh, what a fun time this was. (laughs) In November 1947, the leaders of the motion picture industry decided to deny employment to anyone who refused to answer questions posed by the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Following the Hollywood Ten's defiance of the committee, Hellman wrote an editorial in December's issue of Screenwriter, the publication of the Screenwriters Guild titled The Judas Goats. It mocked the committee's derided producers for allowing themselves to be intimidated. In the early 1970s, Hellman taught writing for short periods at the University of California, Berkeley, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Hunter College in New York City. Hellman died on June 30th in 1984 at the age of 79 from a heart attack near her home on Martha's Vineyard. Several institutions awarded Hellman honorary degrees, including Brandeis University, Wheaton College, Mount Holyoke College, Smith College, Yale University, and Columbia University. Human Rights Watch administers the Hellman Hammett Grant Program, named for the two of them. Up next, we have Jane Murphin. Jane Macklem was born October 27, 1884, in Quincy, Michigan. In 1907, she married an attorney, James Murphin, and retained his surname when the marriage ended and fewer than five years later. Murphin began her career with the play Lilac Time, which she co-wrote with actress Jane Cowell. The Broadway production opened February 6, 1970, and ran for 176 performances. Later that year, the two women began collaborating, often under pseudonym Alan Langdon Martin, on a series of revivals of World War I melodramas. The pair later collaborated on 
Daybreak, followed by Information Please in 1918 and Smilin' Through in 1919. In Hollywood, Murfin became a leading screenwriter, writing romantic comedies and dramas by herself or in collaboration. In 1920, director Lawrence Trimble persuaded Murfin to purchase a German shepherd dog, Strongheart, aww, that became the first major canine film star. Oh my god! <laughs> we love puppers! Strongheart starred in four films that Trimble directed from Murfin's screenplays. The Silent Call, 1921, Brawn of the North, 1922, The Love Master, 1924, and White Fang in 1925. Murfin is credited with directing one film, Flapper Wives, in 1924, before the disillusion of her partnership with Trimble. Murfin's later screenwriting credits include Way Back Home, Our Betters, The Little Minster, Spitfire, Roberta, Alice Adams, The Women, Pride and Prejudice, and Dragon Seed. Murfin was married to director and actor Donald Crisp from 1932 until 1944. Murfin and Adela Rogers St. John's were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Story for What Price Hollywood in 1932. Alright, up next we have Catherine Turney. Turney and her parents, George and Elizabeth, moved from Chicago to Rome, New York, where she spent most of her childhood. In 1921, they moved to Pasadena, California. In the summer of 1926, Turney started working at the Pasadena Playhouse School of Theater, where she helped Gilmore Brown prepare for a premiere of Eugene O'Neill's Lazarus Laughed. She later became the director of the Playhouse Workshop and received a scholarship for the School of Theater, where she graduated the first class of 1931. In the 1930s, she had early success in theater, where her plays Bitter Harvest in 1936 performed in London, and due to the work's positive reviews from thinking she was English and not American, she was offered a job from... <laughs> that's just such a weird... What a weird review idea. Uh, she was offered a job at MGM. She then worked on the film The Bride War Red in 1937, which was an adaptation of Frederick Molnar's unproduced play, The Girl from Triste? That's, that's sad in Spanish. The Girl from... Trieste, sorry guys, <laughs> which was later handled, which was later handed to another screenwriter, Joe Mankiewicz. Turney and Waldo Salt, her co-writer, were not given screen credit for the film, but Turney later stated that the film turned out to be an awful turkey called The Bride War Red. After Bitter Harvest and her experience at MGM, she returned to playwriting and penned My Dear Children in 1939. Her greatest stage success was performed on Broadway starring John Barrymore. The play was performed 117 times and would have been performed more if Barrymore hadn't grown tired of it. Turney returned to working as the Pasadena Playhouse until she was offered a job from Warner Brothers. She was one of the first women writers to become a contract worker at Warner Brothers, where she worked from 1943 to 1948. When asked about why she was hired, Turney stated that due to men being at war, women could be given more opportunities. Whew, ain't that the truth about the world wars? Um, women happened to get better jobs here uh, stateside when, you know, the boys are over there. With this opportunity, Turney wrote characters for big female film stars that were known to be strong and independent women with a sense of character and humor. She became known for writing some of the biggest stars of all time, such as Rosalind Russell, Anne Sheridan, Ida Lupino, Bette Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, and others. So she's just like, I'm gonna get all these ladies up in here, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Turney is probably best known for The Man I Love, A Stolen Life, My Reputation, and Mildred Pierce, although uncredited for the latter. 
When Mildred Pierce was nominated for Best Screenplay Writing at the 1946 Academy Awards, Turney did not receive an on-screen credit and therefore was technically never nominated for an Academy Award. That's complete bullshit. Winter Meeting in 1948 was Turney's last film with Warner Brothers, as she would later join Paramount Pictures for the writing of No Man of Her Own in 1949. Her last screenplays were both with 20th Century Fox. They were Japanese War Bride and Back from the Dead the latter being an adaptation of her own novel, The Other One. Turney wrote for television from the late 1950s and early 1960s for shows including Maverick, General Hospital, Alcola Presents, and The Wonderful World of Disney, the precursor to the Disney Channel. In the later 1950s, she focused on writing biographies, historical romance novels, and television soap operas. The Other One, her first novel, published in 1952, was adapted into a film in 1957 under the title back from the dead. And like I said earlier, she wrote that screenplay. Perhaps her most recognized biography is Byron's Daughter, a biography of Elizabeth Medora Lay, and that was published in 1972. Despite her success and her career, Turney is said to have lived most of her life suffering from financial troubles, and Turney died in her sleep at the age of 92 in Sierra Madre, California. Up next, we have Joan Harrison, born in Guilford, Surrey, Harrison studied at the St. Hughes College, Oxford, and reviewed films for a student newspaper. She also studied at the Sorbonne in 1933 and became Alfred Hitchcock's secretary. Eventually, she began reading books and scripts for him and became one of Hitchcock's most trusted associates. Harrison appears in the scene in Hitchcock's original version of The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1934, eating dinner with Peter Lorre's character. She was among the screenwriters for Hitchcock's film, Jamaica Inn in 1939, based on the novel by Daphne du Maurier. I think I said that right. I read Rebecca in high school. <laughs> when Hitchcock moved to Hollywood in March 1939 to begin his contract with David O. Selznick to direct films, Harrison went with him as an assistant and a writer. She continued contributing to the screenplays for Hitchcock's films Rebecca in 1940, like I also said, was adapted from uh, the novel Rebecca <laughs> by Daphne du Maurier and Foreign Correspondent in 1940, Suspicion in 1941, and Saboteur in 1942. She was also credited as one of the screenwriters for Dark Waters in 1944. Harrison was uncredited screenwriter for Ride the Pink Horse in 1947 and Your Witness, and she became a film producer with Phantom Lady in 1944, and produced such films as The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry in 1945, Nocturne, 1946, Ride the Pink Horse, 1947, and They Won't Believe Me, 1947. At the time, she was one of the only three female producers in Hollywood, the ones being Virginia Van Upp and Harriet Parsons. Harrison worked in television with Hitchcock together with Norman Lloyd when she produced his television series, Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. She and Lloyd were later producers in the Hammer TV anthology, Journey into the Unknown, which ran a single season in 1968. Last but certainly not least, we have Virginia Kellogg. Virginia was born in L.A. in 1907. She attended Los Angeles High School, and her first job was as a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. By 1930, she was working at Paramount as a scenarist after starting out as a script girl and secretary for director Clarence Brown around 1926. She wrote a string of pre-code films for the studio at the time, including The Road to Reno and Mary Stevens, M.D., all the while, she continued writing radio plays and writing for national magazines. 
In order to research Caged, the subject of which women in prison, she became an inmate, oh my god, with the assistance of authorities, she was incarcerated with false conviction for embezzlement and served time in four American prisons. Other films included Screaming Eagles, White Heat, and T-Men. Man, she went into prison for <laughs> doing research? That's just, that's crazy. That's, that's real dedication right there. But there are some of the awesome female writers who were writing for studio systems in the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, there aren't, there are a couple more that wrote here and there intended to be actresses, but they had mostly acting careers, so I decided not to include them as much. And as always, I try to do as much research as possible, but sometimes your girl's lazy, or sometimes I have to narrow it down. As we noticed throughout here, we saw a lot of women who were into social justice issues, who were into civil rights, who were getting jobs because men were off to war, so they were like, okay, I'm gonna do my best and I'm gonna write as many roles for women as possible. And once again, there were a couple women in here who were like the first women writers in some of these studios. And then we had the one who was actually a producer. And we won't, we haven't talked about producers yet, but that's something I'll get to down the line as well. Much like directors had a hard time and in the golden age of Hollywood, it's, uh, it's writers that also have a hard time. Uh, editors tended to have a little bit of an easier time because like I said, editors didn't really exist in the early days of Hollywood. But writing actually became something important during the golden age, during the studio system. So, of course, as things become prominent, they kind of want to push the women out, you know? Uh, and especially with the code, a lot of the women were writing things that were kind of heavier subjects, like pre-code. So they definitely didn't want them writing anything from there. The next episode is going to be about modern female writers, and I haven't done a mini episode in a while, so I'm going to think about doing a mini episode as well. I did uh, like right down as the lockdown started, I really had all this planned out and then I got lazy and then I stopped planning things out. I am going to do a special episode about black women in the industry and that's going to go from, uh, it's going to be editors, it's going to be directors, it's going to be writers as well, just because I feel like I did not do as much research as I possibly could have in the first ones and I want to do my due diligence and represent as well. And because representation matters, I'm also probably going to do that for all women of color um, at some point. Thanks for listening. I hope that you enjoyed learning about the writers of the Hollywood Golden Age. Thanks for listening. This has been The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast researched, created, and edited by me. Special thanks to my dad, Mark Castaneda, for doing the music. 